Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast about gothic literature. Join us as we listen to spooky stories and stories that I, I, I don't... Ow. This hurts my voice. Hey, everyone. This is D.B. Spitzer. This is recorded at the KZOM Studios in Oleander, Oregon. This We're going to be going with uh, Matthew Lewis's The Monk. I'm not sure if we have anyone talking about this this month, but... This is gothic literature. This is one of those old school goth lit stories that, you know, this is gothic literature. So check it out. The Monk, uh, read by J.R. White. I can't remember who it is. I just edited this and heard it a billion times. But anyway, thank you so much for listening. Black Clock Audio Tales, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, Radio Free Oleander, PGTTCM.com. Rate, review, subscribe, check out the podcast, and look for us online. Recording by James K. White. The Monk, A Romance, by Matthew Gregory Lewis. Chapter 9, Part 1. Tell us, ye dead, will none of you in pity to those you left behind disclose the secret? Oh, that some courteous ghost would blab it out. What tis you are, and we must shortly be. I've heard that souls departed have sometimes forewarned men of their deaths. Twas kindly done to knock and give the alarum. Blair Ambrosio shuddered at himself when he reflected on his rapid advances in iniquity. The enormous crime which he had just committed filled him with real horror. The murdered Elvira was continually before his eyes, and his guilt was already punished by the agonies of his conscience. Time, however, considerably weakened these impressions. One day passed away, another followed it, and still not the least suspicion was thrown upon him. Impunity reconciled him to his guilt. He began to resume his spirits and as his fears of detection died away paid less attention to the reproaches of remorse matilda exerted herself to quiet his alarms at the first intelligence of elvida's death she seemed greatly affected and joined the monk in deploring the unhappy catastrophe of his adventure but when she found his agitation to be somewhat calmed and himself better disposed to listen to her arguments she proceeded to mention his offence in milder terms, and convince him that he was not so highly culpable as he appeared to consider himself. She represented that he had only availed himself of the rights which nature allows to everyone, those of self-preservation, that either Elvida or himself must have perished, and that her inflexibility and resolution to ruin him had deservedly marked her out for the victim. She next stated that, as he had before rendered himself suspected to Elvira, it was a fortunate event for him that her lips were closed by death. Since, without this last adventure, her suspicions, if made public, might have produced very disagreeable consequences. He had, therefore, freed himself from an enemy, to whom the errors of his conduct were sufficiently known to make her dangerous and who was the greatest obstacle of his designs upon Antonia. Those designs she encouraged him not to abandon. She assured him that, no longer protected by her mother's watchful eye, 
the daughter would fall an easy conquest. And by praising and enumerating Antonia's charms, she strove to rekindle the desires of the monk. In this endeavor she succeeded but too well. As if the crimes into which his passion had seduced him had only increased its violence, he longed more eagerly than ever to enjoy Antonia. The same success in concealing his present guilt, he trusted, would attend his future. He was deaf to the murmurs of conscience, and resolved to satisfy his desires at any price. He waited only for an opportunity of repeating his former enterprise, but to produce that opportunity by the same means was now impracticable. In the first transports of despair he had dashed the enchanted myrtle into a thousand pieces. Matilda told him plainly that he must expect no further assistance from the infernal powers unless he was willing to subscribe to their established conditions. This Ambrosio was determined not to do. He persuaded himself that, however great might be his iniquity, so long as he preserved his claim to salvation, he need not despair of pardon. He therefore resolutely refused to enter into any bond or compact with the fiends, and Matilda, finding him obstinate upon this point, forbore to press him further. She exerted her invention to discover some means of putting Antonia into the abbot's power, nor was it long before that means presented itself. While her ruin was thus meditating, the unhappy girl herself suffered severely from the loss of her mother. Every morning on waking, it was her first care to hasten to Elvira's chamber. On that which followed Ambrosio's fatal visit, she woke later than was her usual custom. Of this she was convinced by the abbey chimes. She started from her bed, threw on a few loose garments hastily, and was speeding to inquire how her mother had passed the night, when her foot struck against something which lay in her passage. She looked down. What was her horror at recognizing Elvira's livid course? She uttered a loud shriek, and threw herself upon the floor. She clasped the inanimate form to her bosom, felt that it was dead cold, and with a movement of disgust, of which she was not the mistress, let it fall again from her arms. The cry had alarmed Flora, who hastened to her assistance. The sight which she beheld penetrated her with horror, but her alarm was more audible than Antonia's. She made the house ring with her lamentations, while her mistress, almost suffocated with grief, could only mark her distress by sobs and groans. Flora's shrieks soon reached the ears of the hostess, whose terror and surprise were excessive, on learning the cause of this disturbance. A physician was immediately sent for, but on the first moment of beholding the course, he declared that Elvida's recovery was beyond the power of art. He proceeded, therefore, to give his assistance to Antonia, who by this time was truly in need of it. She was conveyed to bed, while the landlady busied herself in giving orders for Elvida's burial. Dame Jacinta was a plain, good kind of woman, charitable, generous, and devout. But her intellects were weak, and she was a miserable slave to fear and superstition. She shuddered at the idea of passing the night in the same house with a dead body. She was persuaded that Elvira's ghost would appear to her, and no less certain that such a visit would kill her with fright. 
From this persuasion she resolved to pass the night at a neighbor's, and insisted that the funeral should take place the next day. St. Clair's Cemetery being the nearest, it was determined that Elvira should be buried there. Dame Jacinta engaged to defray every expense attending the burial. She knew not in what circumstances Antonia was left, but from the sparing manner in which the family had lived, she concluded them to be indifferent. Consequently, she entertained very little hope of ever being recompensed. But this consideration prevented her not from taking care that the interment was performed with decency and from showing the unfortunate Antonia all possible respect. Nobody dies of mere grief. Of this Antonia was an instance. Aided by her youth and healthy constitution, she shook off the malady which her mother's death had occasioned, but it was not so easy to remove the disease of her mind. Her eyes were constantly filled with tears. Every trifle affected her, and she evidently nourished in her bosom a profound and rooted melancholy. The slightest mention of Elvira, the most trivial circumstance recalling that beloved parent to her memory, was sufficient to throw her into serious agitation. How much would her grief have been increased had she known the agonies which terminated her mother's existence? But of this no one entertained the least suspicion. Elvira was subject to strong convulsions. It was supposed that, aware of their approach, she had dragged herself to her daughter's chamber in hopes of assistance. That a sudden access of her fits had seized her too violent to be resisted by her already enfeebled state of health, and that she had expired ere she had time to reach the medicine which generally relieved her, and which stood upon a shelf in Antonia's room. This idea was firmly credited by the few people who interested themselves about Elvira. Her death was esteemed a natural event, and soon forgotten by all, save by her who had but too much reason to deplore her loss. In truth, Antonia's situation was sufficiently embarrassing and unpleasant. She was alone in the midst of a dissipated and expensive city. She was ill provided with money and worse with friends. Her aunt Leonella was still at Cordova, and she knew not her direction. Of the Marquise de las Cisternas she heard no news. As to Lorenzo, she had long given up the idea of possessing any interest in his bosom. She knew not to whom she could address herself in her present dilemma. She wished to consult Ambrosio, but she remembered her mother's injunctions to shun him as much as possible and the last conversation which Elvira had held with her upon the subject had given her sufficient lights respecting his designs to put her upon her guard against him in future. Still, all her mother's warnings could not make her change her good opinion of the friar. She continued to feel that his friendship and society were requisite to her happiness. She looked upon his failings with a partial eye, and could not persuade herself that he really had intended her ruin. However, Elvira had positively commanded her to drop his acquaintance, and she had too much respect for her orders to disobey them. At length she resolved to address herself for advice and protection to the Marquise de las Cisternas, as being her nearest relation. She wrote to him, briefly stating her desolate situation. She besought him to compassionate his brother's child, to continue to her Elvira's pension, and to authorize her retiring to his old castle in Mercia, 
which till just now had been her retreat. Having sealed her letter, she gave it to the trusty Flora, who immediately set out to execute her commission. But Antonia was born under an unlucky star. Had she made her application to the Marquis but one day sooner, received as his niece and placed at the head of his family, she would have escaped all the misfortunes with which she was now threatened. Raymond had always intended to execute this plan, but, first, his hopes of making the proposal to Elvira through the lips of Agnes, and afterwards his disappointment at losing his intended bride, as well as the severe illness which for some time had confined him to his bed, made him defer from day to day the giving an asylum in his house to his brother's widow. He had commissioned Lorenzo to supply her liberally with money, but Elvira, unwilling to receive obligations from that nobleman, had assured him that she needed no immediate pecuniary assistance. Consequently, the Marquise did not imagine that a trifling delay on his part would create any embarrassment, and the distress and agitation of his mind might well excuse his negligence. Had he been informed that Elvita's death had left her daughter friendless and unprotected, he would doubtless have taken such measures as would have ensured her from every danger. But Antonia was not destined to be so fortunate. The day on which she sent her letter to the Palace de las Cisternas was that following Lorenzo's departure from Madrid. The Marquise was in the first paroxysms of despair at the conviction that Agnes was indeed no more. He was delirious, and his life being in danger, no one was suffered to approach him. Flora was informed that he was incapable of attending to letters, and that probably a few hours would decide his fate. With this unsatisfactory answer she was obliged to return to her mistress, who now found herself plunged into greater difficulties than ever. Flora and Dame Jacinta exerted themselves to console her. The latter begged her to make herself easy, for that as long as she chose to stay with her, she would treat her like her own child. Antonia, finding that the good woman had taken a real affection for her, was somewhat comforted by thinking that she had at least one friend in the world. A letter was now brought to her, directed to Elvira. She recognized Leonella's writing, and, opening it with joy, found a detailed account of her aunt's adventures at Cordova. She informed her sister that she had recovered her legacy, had lost her heart, and had received in exchange that of the most amiable of apothecaries, past, present, and to come. She added that she should be at Madrid on the Tuesday night, and meant to have the pleasure of presenting her caro sposo in form. Though her nuptials were far from pleasing Antonia, Leonella's speedy return gave her niece much delight. She rejoiced in thinking that she should once more be under a relation's care. She could not but judge it to be highly improper for a young woman to be living among absolute strangers, with no one to regulate her conduct or protect her from the insults to which, in her defenseless situation, she was exposed. She therefore looked forward with impatience to the Tuesday night. It arrived. Antonia listened anxiously to the carriages as they rolled along the street. None of them stopped, and it grew late without Leonella's appearing. Still Antonia resolved to sit up till her aunt's arrival, and, in spite of all her remonstrances, Dame Jacinta and Flora insisted upon doing the same. 
the hours passed on slow and tediously lorenzo's departure from madrid had put a stop to the nightly serenades she hoped in vain to hear the usual sound of guitars beneath her window she took up her own and struck a few chords but music that evening had lost its charms for her and she soon replaced the instrument in its case she seated herself at her embroidery frame but nothing went right the silks were missing the thread snapped every moment and the needles were so expert at falling that they seemed to be animated at length a flake of wax fell from the taper which stood near her upon a favorite wreath of violets this completely discomposed her she threw down her needle and quitted the frame it was decreed that for that night nothing should have the power of amusing her she was the prey of ennui and employed herself in making fruitless wishes for the arrival of her aunt as she walked with a listless air up and down the chamber the door caught her eye conducting to that which had been her mother's she remembered that elvida's little library was arranged there and thought that she might possibly find in it some book to amuse her till leonella should arrive accordingly she took her taper from the table passed through the little closet and entered the adjoining apartment as she looked around her the sight of this room brought to her recollection a thousand painful ideas it was the first time of her entering it since her mother's death the total silence prevailing through the chamber the bed despoiled of its furniture the cheerless hearth where stood an extinguished lamp and a few dying plants in the window which since elvida's loss had been neglected inspired antonio with a melancholy awe the gloom of night gave strength to this sensation she placed her light upon the table and sunk into a large chair in which she had seen her mother seated a thousand and a thousand times she was never to see her seated there again tears unbidden streamed down her cheek and she abandoned herself to the sadness which grew deeper with every moment ashamed of her weakness she at length rose from her seat she proceeded to seek for what had brought her to this melancholy scene the small collection of books was arranged upon several shelves in order antonia examined them without finding anything likely to interest her till she put her hand upon a volume of old spanish ballads she read a few stanzas of one of them they excited her curiosity she took down the book and seated herself to peruse it with ease she trimmed the taper which now drew towards its end and then read the following ballad alonzo the brave and fair imogene a warrior so bold and a virgin so bright conversed as they sat on the green they gazed on each other with tender delight alonzo the brave was the name of the knight the maids was the fair imogene and oh said the youth since to-morrow i go to fight in a far distant land your tears for my absence soon leaving to flow some other will court you and you will bestow on a wealthier suitor your hand oh hush these suspicions fair imogene said offensive to love and to me for if you be living or if you be dead i swear by the virgin that none in your stead shall husband of imogene be 
if e'er i by lust or by wealth led aside forget my alonzo the brave god grant that to punish my falsehood and pride your ghost at the marriage may sit by my side may tax me with perjury claim me as bride and bear me away to the grave to palestine hastened the hero so bold his love she lamented him sore but scarce had a twelvemonth elapsed when behold a baron all covered with jewels and gold arrived at fair imogene's door his treasure his presence his spacious domain soon made her untrue to her vows he dazzled her eyes he bewildered her brain he caught her affections so light and so vain and carried her home as his spouse and now had the marriage been blessed by the priest the revelry now was begun the tables they groaned with the weight of the feast nor yet had the laughter and merriment ceased when the bell of the castle tolled one then first with amazement fair imogene found that a stranger was placed at her side his air was terrific he uttered no sound he spoke not he moved not he looked not around but earnestly gazed on the bride his visor was closed and gigantic his height his armor was sable to view all pleasure and laughter were hushed at his sight the dogs as they eyed him drew back in affright the lights in the chamber burned blue his presence all bosoms appeared to dismay the guests sat in silence and fear at length spoke the bride while she trembled i pray sir knight that your helmet aside you would lay and deign to partake of our cheer the lady is silent the stranger complies his visor he slowly unclosed o oh god what a sight met fair imogene's eyes what words can express her dismay and surprise when a skeleton's head was exposed all present then uttered a terrified shout all turned with disgust from the scene the worms they crept in and the worms they crept out and sported his eyes and his temples about while the spectre addressed imogene behold me thou false one behold me he cried remember alonzo the brave god grant that to punish thy falsehood and pride my ghost at thy marriage should sit by thy side should tax thee with perjury claim thee as bride and bear thee away to the grave thus saying his arms round the lady he wound while loudly she shrieked in dismay then sank with his prey through the wide yawning ground nor ever again was fair imogene found or the spectre who bore her away not long lived the baron and none since that time to inhabit the castle presume for chronicles tell that by order sublime there imogene suffers the pain of her crime and mourns her deplorable doom at midnight four times in each year does her sprite when mortals in slumber are bound arrayed in her bridal apparel of white appear in the hall with the skeleton knight and shriek as he whirls her around while they drink out of skulls newly torn from the grave dancing round them the spectres are seen their liquor is blood and this horrible stave they howl to the health of alonzo the brave 
and his consort, the false Imogene. The perusal of this story was ill-calculated to dispel Antonia's melancholy. She had naturally a strong inclination to the marvellous, and her nurse, who believed firmly in apparitions, had related to her, when an infant, so many horrible adventures of this kind, that all Elvita's attempts had failed to eradicate their impressions from her daughter's mind. Antonia still nourished a superstitious prejudice in her bosom. She was often susceptible to terrors which, when she discovered their natural and insignificant cause, made her blush at her own weakness. With such a turn of mind, the adventure which she had just been reading sufficed to give her apprehensions the alarm. The hour and the scene combined to authorize them. It was the dead of night. She was alone, and in the chamber once occupied by her deceased mother. The weather was comfortless and stormy, the wind howled around the house, the doors rattled in their frames, and the heavy rain pattered against the windows. No other sound was heard. The taper now burned down to the socket, sometimes flaring upwards, shot a gloom of light through the room. Then, sinking again, seemed upon the point of expiring. Antonia's heart throbbed with agitation. Her eyes wandered fearfully over the objects around her as the trembling flame illuminated them at intervals. She attempted to rise from her seat, but her limbs trembled so violently that she was unable to proceed. She then called Flora, who was in a room at no great distance, but agitation choked her voice, and her cries died away in hollow murmurs. She passed some minutes in this situation, after which her terrors began to diminish. She strove to recover herself and acquire strength enough to quit the room. Suddenly she fancied that she heard a low sigh drawn near her. This idea brought back her former weakness. She had already raised herself from her seat and was on the point of taking the lamp from the table. The imaginary noise stopped her. She drew back her hand and supported herself upon the back of a chair. She listened anxiously, but nothing more was heard. Gracious God, she said to herself, what could be that sound? Was I deceived, or did I really hear it? Her reflections were interrupted by a voice at the door, scarcely audible. It seemed as if somebody was whispering. Antonia's alarm increased, yet the bolt she knew to be fastened, and this idea in some degree reassured her. Presently the latch was lifted up softly, and the door moved with caution backwards and forwards. Excess of terror now supplied Antonia with that strength of which she had till then been deprived. She started from her place and made towards the closet door when she might soon have reached the chamber where she expected to find Flora and Dame Jacinta. Scarcely had she reached the middle of the room when the latch was lifted up a second time. An involuntary movement obliged her to turn her head. Slowly and gradually the door turned upon its hinges, and standing upon the threshold she beheld a tall, thin figure wrapped in a white shroud which covered it from head to foot. This vision arrested her feet. She remained as if petrified in the middle of the apartment. The stranger, with measured and solemn steps, drew near the table. The dying taper darted a blue and melancholy flame as the figure advanced towards it. 
Over the table was fixed a small clock. The hand of it was upon the stroke of three. The figure stopped opposite to the clock. It raised its right arm and pointed to the hour, at the same time looking earnestly upon Antonia, who waited for the conclusion of this scene motionless and silent. The figure remained in this posture for some moments. The clock struck. When the sound ceased, the stranger advanced yet a few steps nearer Antonia. Yet three days, said a voice, faint, hollow, and sepulchral. Yet three days, and we meet again. Antonia shuddered at the words. We meet again? she pronounced at length with difficulty. Where shall we meet? Whom shall I meet? The figure pointed to the ground with one hand and with the other raised the linen which covered its face. Almighty God, my mother! Antonia shrieked and fell lifeless upon the floor. Dame Jacinta, who was at work in a neighboring chamber, was alarmed by the cry. Flora was just gone downstairs to fetch fresh oil for the lamp by which they had been sitting. Jacinta therefore hastened alone to Antonia's assistance, and great was her amazement to find her extended upon the floor. She raised her in her arms, conveyed her to her apartment, and placed her upon the bed, still senseless. She then proceeded to bathe her temples, chafe her hands, and use all possible means of bringing her to herself. With some difficulty she succeeded. Antonia opened her eyes and looked round her wildly. "'Where is she?' she cried in a trembling voice. "'Is she gone? Am I safe? Speak to me. Comfort me. Oh, speak to me, for God's sake!' "'Safe? From whom, my child?' replied the astonished Jacinta. What alarms you? Of whom are you afraid? In three days. She told me that we should meet in three days. I heard her say it. I saw her, Jacinta, I saw her but this moment. She threw herself upon Jacinta's bosom. You saw her? Saw whom? My mother's ghost. Christ Jesus, cried Jacinta and starting from the bed let fall Antonia upon the pillow and fled in consternation out of the room. As she hastened downstairs she met Flora ascending them. "'Go to your mistress, Flora,' said she. "'Here are rare doings. Oh, I am the most unfortunate woman alive. My house is filled with ghosts and dead bodies, and the Lord knows what besides. Yet I am sure nobody likes such company less than I do.' but go your way to doña antonia flora and let me go mine thus saying she continued her course to the street door which she opened and without allowing herself time to throw on her veil she made the best of her way to the capuchin abbey in the meanwhile flora hastened to her lady's chamber equally surprised and alarmed at jacinta's consternation she found antonia lying upon the bed insensible she used the same means for her recovery that Jacinta had already employed, but finding that her mistress only recovered from one fit into another, she sent in all haste for a physician. While expecting his arrival, she undressed Antonia and conveyed her to bed. 
Heedless of the storm, terrified almost out of her senses, Jacinta ran through the streets and stopped not till she reached the gate of the abbey. She rang loudly at the bell, and as soon as the porter appeared, she desired permission to speak to the superior. Ambrosio was then conferring with Matilda upon the means of procuring access to Antonia. The cause of Elvida's death remaining unknown, he was convinced that crimes were not so swiftly followed by punishment as his instructors, the monks, had taught him, and as till then he had himself believed. This persuasion made him resolve upon Antonia's ruin, for the enjoyment of whose person dangers and difficulties only seemed to have increased his passion. The monk had already made one attempt to gain admission to her pretense, but Flora had refused him in such a manner as to convince him that all future endeavors must be vain. Elvira had confided her suspicions to that trusty servant. She had desired her never to leave Ambrosio alone with her daughter, and, if possible, to prevent their meeting altogether. Flora promised to obey her, and had executed her orders to the very letter. Ambrosio's visits had been rejected that morning, though Antonia was ignorant of it. He saw that to obtain a sight of his mistress by open means was out of the question, and both himself and Matilda had consumed the night in endeavouring to invent some plan whose event might be more successful. Such was their employment when a lay brother entered the abbot's cell, and informed him that a woman calling herself Jacinta Suniga requested audience for a few minutes. Ambrosio was by no means disposed to grant the petition of his visitor. He refused it positively, and bade the lay-brother tell the stranger to return the next day. Matilda interrupted him. "'See this woman,' said she in a low voice. "'I have my reasons.' The abbot obeyed her, and signified that he would go to the parlour immediately. With this answer the lay-brother withdrew. As soon as they were alone, Ambrosio inquired why Matilda wished him to see this Jacinta. "'She is Antonia's hostess,' replied Matilda. "'She may possibly be of use to you, but let us examine her, and learn what brings her hither.' They proceeded together to the parlour, where Jacinta was already waiting for the abbot. She had conceived a great opinion of his piety and virtue, and supposing him to have much influence over the devil, thought that it must be an easy matter for him to lay Elvida's ghost in the Red Sea. Filled with this persuasion, she had hastened to the abbey. As soon as she saw the monk enter the parlour, she dropped upon her knees, and began her story as follows. O reverend father, such an accident, such an adventure, I know not what course to take, and unless you can help me, I shall certainly go distracted. Well, to be sure, never was a woman so unfortunate as myself. All in my power to keep clear of such abomination have I done, and yet that all is too little. What signifies my telling my beads four times a day, and observing every fast prescribed by the calendar? What signifies my having made three pilgrimages to St. James of Compostela, and purchased as many pardons from the Pope as would buy off Cain's punishment? Nothing prospers with me. All goes wrong, and God only knows whether anything will ever go right again. Why now, be your holiness the judge. 
my lodger dies in convulsions out of pure kindness i bury her at my own expense not that she is any relation of mine or that i shall be benefited a single pistola for her death i got nothing by it and therefore you know reverend father that her living or dying was just the same to me but that is nothing to the purpose to return to what i was saying i took care of her funeral had everything performed decently and properly and put myself to expense enough god knows and how do you think the lady repays me for my kindness why truly by refusing to sleep quietly in her comfortable deal coffin as a peaceable well-disposed spirit ought to do and coming to plague me who never wish to set eyes on her again forsooth it well becomes her to go racketing about my house at midnight popping into her daughter's room through the keyhole and frightening the poor child out of her wits though she be a ghost she might be more civil than to bolt into a person's house who likes her company so little but as for me reverend father the plain state of the case is this if she walks into my house i must walk out of it for i cannot abide such visitors not i thus you see your sanctity that without your assistance i am ruined and undone for ever i shall be obliged to quit my house nobody will take it when tis known that she haunts it and then i shall find myself in a fine situation miserable woman that i am what shall i do what will become of me here she wept bitterly wrung her hands and begged to know the abbot's opinion of her case in truth good woman replied he it will be difficult for me to relieve you without knowing what is the matter with you you have forgotten to tell me what has happened and what it is you want let me die cried jacinta but your sanctity is in the right this then is the fact stated briefly a lodger of mine is lately dead a very good sort of woman that i must needs say for her as far as my knowledge of her went though that was not a great way she kept me too much at a distance for indeed she was given to be upon the high ropes and whenever i ventured to speak to her she had a look with her which always made me feel a little queerish god forgive me for saying so however though she was more stately than needful and affected to look down upon me though if i am well informed i come of as good parents as she could do for her ears for her father was a shoemaker at cordova and mine was a hatter at madrid ay and a very creditable hatter too let me tell you yet for all her pride she was a quiet well-behaved body and i never wished to have a better lodger this makes me wonder the more at her not sleeping quietly in her grave but there was no trusting to people in this world for my part i never saw her do amiss except on the friday before her death to be sure i was then much scandalized by seeing her eat the wing of a chicken how madonna flora quoth i flora may it please your reverence is the name of the waiting maid how madonna flora quoth i does your mistress eat flesh upon fridays well well see the event and then remember that dame jacinta warned you of it these were my very words but alas i might as well have held my tongue nobody minded me and flora who is somewhat pert and snappish more is the pity say i told me that there was no more harm in eating a chicken than the egg from which it came nay she even declared that if her lady added a slice of bacon she would not be an inch nearer damnation god protect us 
a poor, ignorant, sinful soul. I protest to your holiness, I trembled to hear such blasphemies and expected every moment to see the ground open and swallow her up, chicken and all. For you must know, worshipful father, that while she talked thus, she held the plate in her hand on which lay the identical roast fowl, and a fine bird it was, that I must say for it, done to a turn, for I superintended the cooking of it myself. It was a little Galician of my own raising, may it please your holiness, and the flesh was as white as an eggshell, as indeed Doña Elvira told me herself. Dame Jacinta, said she, very good-humouredly, though, to say the truth, she was always very polite to me. Here Ambrosio's patience failed him. Eager to know Jacinta's business, in which Antonia seemed to be concerned, he was almost distracted while listening to the rambling of this prosing old woman. He interrupted her, and protested that if she did not immediately tell her story and have done with it, he should quit the parlour, and leave her to get out of her difficulties by herself. This had the desired effect. Jacinta related her business in as few words as she could manage, but her account was so prolix that Ambrosio had need of his patience to bear him to the conclusion. "'And so, your reverence,' said she, after relating Elvita's death and burial, with all their circumstances, "'and so, your reverence, upon hearing the shriek, I put away my work, and away posted I to Doña Antonia's chamber.' Finding nobody there, I passed on to the next, but I must own I was a little timorous at going in, for this was the very room where Doña Elvira used to sleep. However, in I went. There lay the young lady at full length upon the floor, as cold as a stone, and as white as a sheet. I was surprised at this, as your holiness may well suppose, but, oh me, how I shook when I saw a great tall figure at my elbow, whose head touched the ceiling. The face was Doña Elvira's, I must confess. But out of its mouth came clouds of fire, its arms were loaded with heavy chains which it rattled piteously, and every hair on its head was a serpent as big as my arm. At this I was frightened enough, and began to say my Ave Maria, but the ghost interrupting me, uttered three loud groans, and roared out in a terrible voice, "'Oh, that chicken's wing! My poor soul suffers for it!' As soon as she had said this, the ground opened, the spectre sank down. I heard a clap of thunder, and the room was filled with a smell of brimstone. When I recovered from my fright, and had brought Doña Antonia to herself, who told me that she had cried out upon seeing her mother's ghost, and well might she cry, poor soul, had I been in her place I should have cried ten times louder. It directly came into my head that if any one had power to quit this spectre, it must be your reverence. So hither I came, in all diligence, to beg that you will sprinkle my house with holy water, and lay the apparition in the Red Sea. Ambrosio stared at this strange story, which he could not credit. "'Did Doña Antonia also see the ghost?' said he. "'As plain as I see you, Reverend Father.' Ambrosio paused for a moment. Here was an opportunity offered him of gaining access to Antonia, but he hesitated to employ it. The reputation which he enjoyed in Madrid was still dear to him, and since he had lost the reality of virtue, it appeared as if its semblance was become more valuable.' 
he was conscious that publicly to break through the rule never to quit the abbey precincts would derogate much from his supposed austerity. In visiting Elvida, he had always taken care to keep his features concealed from the domestics. Except by the lady, her daughter, and the faithful Flora, he was known in the family by no other name than that of Father Jerome. Should he comply with Jacinta's request and accompany her to her house, he knew that the violation of his rule could not be kept a secret. However, his eagerness to see Antonia obtain the victory, he even hoped that the singularity of this adventure would justify him in the eyes of Madrid. But whatever might be the consequences, he resolved to profit by the opportunity which chance had presented to him. An expressive look from Matilda confirmed him in this resolution. "'Good woman,' said he to Asinta, "'what you tell me is so extraordinary that I can scarcely credit your assertions. However, I will comply with your request. Tomorrow, after matins, you may expect me at your house. I will then examine into what I can do for you, and, if it is in my power, will free you from this unwelcome visitor. Now then, go home, and peace be with you.' "'Home!' exclaimed Asinta. "'I go home.' not I by my troth, except under your protection I set no foot of mine within the threshold. God help me, the ghost may meet me upon the stairs and whisk me away with her to the devil. Oh, that I had accepted young Melchior Basco's offer! Then I should have had somebody to protect me. But now I am a lone woman, and meet with nothing but crosses and misfortunes. Thank heaven it is not yet too late to repent. There is Simon Gonzales will have me any day of the week, and if I live till daybreak, I will marry him out of hand. A husband I will have, that is determined, for now this ghost is once in my house, I shall be frightened out of my wits to sleep alone. But for God's sake, reverend father, come with me now, I shall have no rest till the house is purified, or the poor young lady either. The dear girl, she is in a piteous taking." i left her in strong convulsions and i doubt she will not easily recover her fright the friar started and interrupted her hastily in convulsions say you antonia in convulsions lead on good woman i follow you this moment jacinta insisted upon his stopping to furnish himself with the vessel of holy water with this request he complied thinking herself safe under his protection should a legion of ghosts attack her the old woman returned the monk a profusion of thanks, and they departed together for the Strada di San Iago. End of chapter 9, part 1 Recording by James K. White Chula Vista.